With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to Irish Illustrated Insider, the flood-delayed edition this week. I'm joined by Tim Priester as Tim O'Malley is out on vacation. We've got a three-segment show today. The third segment is an interview I did with Notre Dame's newest commitment, Hunter Spears. Um, some insight into his comeback from injury, uh, what sort of intrigued him most about Notre Dame, and, and a little bit about his role as a recruiter moving forward. But I think we've got a lot of news to clear Um in addition to the Spears commitment, I don't think we've done a podcast since the uh, NCAA appeal denial uh, of Notre Dame and the vacation of wins, which I think we have was, not was uh, was high on the day after podcast <laughs> breaking yeah. news scale. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about the eighty-five man limit basketball. A man that was uh, that was a, a depressing game to watch <laughs> yeah. uh, against Miami on Monday night, but. Let's start with the NCAA. Tim, you did a, a column uh, and definitely your Notre Dame graduate uh, perspective. No doubt about got it. In there, got in there pretty hard. I, I guess I don't think any of us were surprised that the appeal was denied. Um, well, it was denied like two months ago. So yeah. it, we, we, we were aware of that. At some point in December, I think it was denied. Maybe it was November. But yeah. So Nordin was aware of it. I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of the timing of the announcement, but no, the announcement didn't come as a surprise. And you know, look, I don't. I don't want to pretend to know. You know, all the details of this. I think many of the people in our business and fans in general, you know, have an opinion about these things, and we and we don't have all the facts. Uh, you know, our impression is that Nordin was completely transparent because they self-reported. Were they transparent about everything? Probably not, since since the NCAA ruled against them. So I don't know. I don't know exactly what that would be. But you know, I do know the relationship between Notre Dame and the NCAA going back thirty five years, uh, and it's always been a very strong relationship. And I think you know the NCAA has always kind of looked upon Notre Dame as okay. Notre Dame does things the right way. It would be nice if we could get all the other members of the NCAA uh, to participate in the same way. But somewhere along the line. Um, that relationship, I don't know if you necessarily say it's deteriorated or what, but it certainly has now because Father Jenkins' letter that he put out, you know, clearly stated the reasons why they believe that it was unjustified for, for wins to be vacated. Based upon the information, I know I agree with that opinion, as, as I obviously stated in my column. And I think it's just very frustrating, especially when, you know now Louisville is uh, had is has to vacate their national championship in basketball in 2013, and when the news on these other uh, of this FBI investigation involving NCAA basketball finally breaks, it is going to be catastrophic, and we're going to look back at Notre Dame vacating wins for a a student trainer, not a full time employee, not a professor, not a coach, but a student trainer, another student helping players with papers. That being the reason, basically the reason why Nordheim has to vacate victories, we're going to look back at that and laugh 
in comparison to the things that are going to come out from this FBI investigation with NCAA basketball. Yeah, I mean, with the the trainer being a employee of the university is dodgy to begin with, but the, they changed that rule. They so, changed, you know, it's yeah. like the exact same thing that happened this year and came out in 2019. Notre Dame would be like, it would. I don't even. I mean, I don't consider that person to be a a quote employee of the university. It's a part time job that a student has, which we all had when we were in school to some extent. One of mine was the admissions department in Notre Dame, which was an enlightening experience (laughs) many years ago. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I you know, so those that read my editorial on our website are where, where I'm coming from on this. I'm interested to hear what you, what your thoughts yeah. are. Pete. I mean, I thought that the decision was ridiculous. Um, to, to ding Notre Dame for that, I thought was, was absurd. Just the, the student trainer aspect of it. Um, the fact that the rule uh, changed. Yeah. The rule changed. I mean, I, I felt like it had the spirit of, um, a legal case where the judge would say time served. Like right, right, right. Notre Dame submarine its 2014 season over this. Right. Uh, and I'm not, like, pretty, I think you could say strain the relationship between the athletic department and the football program over it. Um, you know, certainly Brian Kelly didn't come out of that thinking like, well, this is just great. Thanks, guys. I mean, they hung him out to dry yeah. from a media perspective. Throughout, oh, throughout oh the last process. year. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, no doubt. That last was awful. Year, last year when he had to stand up and represent them upon the news. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it a, was I mean, horrible. He, yeah, the 20, yeah, throughout the 2014 through the suspensions. And then you're sitting there at four and seven going to <laughs> USC at the end of the year and they drop the the uh, decision the 10 minutes before your Tuesday press conference and then he comes out kind of unprepared for it and you know does the zero I have no don't you guys have any questions about USC was, yeah I was I mean he really took a lot of bullets that yeah he has maybe some partial uh, responsibility for but very, oh, when I say partial, I mean like single-digit percentages on a scale of yeah. 100. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't see the sweat on him, but he probably looked like Richard Nixon in his yeah. <laughs> debate. Yeah, it just so. I mean, I, I, look, I don't think it's a, a decision where um, there's like any like heroes in here, like. But certainly the NCAA is the biggest villain. Like, if I'm Notre Dame, I'm looking at like, all right, how do we prevent this from happening? Are we uh, taking the right players who don't have to resort to any kind of academic impropriety to make it, um, you know, th- those would be things. And I think from from Notre Dame's perspective, I think Jenkins has to at least sit there and be like, Proud. my feeling was his his letter, that should have been Notre Dame's starting position. Like that press conference that we went to in August of right. 2014 where he was like apologetic and like, we'll do whatever is required and well, that we'll, was, we'll vacate wins if have to. Like, don't start with that. Absolutely start not. With the, start with the letter that you put out when the appeal was denied because that that was a much more strident stay out of our business. We're in charge of our own academics position. Uh, and I think that, that that was a position that if Notre Dame took from the beginning, would it have changed anything? I have absolutely no idea. I don't, I don't know either. And that's why I started my column with that because it's like, what other reason can the NCAA have to, to follow through with this? Is it John Jenkins standing up there with with a well-qualified attorney standing right next yeah. to him, Jack Swarbrick, 
and Father Jenkins saying, you know, we'll fall, we're going to fall on the sword if we find any impropriety here. And I, I agree that that was the wrong. And even at that time, it was like you're going to start out by saying yeah. that. That's that's the wrong tenor to take. But you know, other aspects. If if the student, if those student athletes had been expelled at that time, this wouldn't have happened either. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Notre Dame's completely doing, trying to do the right thing and keeping them in in class. So that if and when they have to transfer, they're still online to, to graduate. Uh, you know, and it wasn't like Notre Dame was protecting six starters, five or six starters, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the time. And Kavari like Russell two and was a half. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, and again, I, I was Notre Dame completely transparent? Probably not, because otherwise, why would the NCAA have come up with this decision? Yeah, but we I mean, don't know that. We don't know the other four players who are involved, who are on the 2012 and 2013 teams. I mean, I think we could all well, take, we have an idea. We take but, a pretty good guess yeah, about yeah. who they were, but um, you know, how what what level of academic misconduct? Like how many assignments? You know, how many courses? We don't really know that. Nor does Notre Dame have any interest in yeah. disclosing that. But um, it's. I was trying to think about, like, what's the best way to explain, like, I think what happened in Notre Dame here. And I sort of thought of, like, the parable of the scorpion and the frog of, like, Notre Dame's the frog and the NCAA is the scorpion. And they get to the end of the river and the scorpion stings them. And Notre Dame's just like, why did you do that? It's like, well, that's just our nature. Yeah. You know, the uh, NCAA's nature is just, like, wildly inconsistent and punitive when it feels like it. Which reminded got burned. Yeah, it reminded me of, and I almost used this line in my column, I didn't, didn't, but what you're saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. And which I have always thought is a, is a fascinating phrase. And I remember the first time I heard it when I was much younger, it's like, what? I don't get that. Well, I get that now. <laughs> and so self-reporting uh, was punished in, in the end. Yeah, it's ultimately Notre Dame was its own prosecutor and like made the case yeah. for the NCAA, and the NCAA was like, well, okay, if you're going to do that, thanks. Now, and the last thing on this as we move to other topics, you know, one of the things I said in the editorial was Notre Dame needs to stand up and say, you know what, you can change any damn record book you want to say, but we're not changing ours. What I've come to find out since I wrote that a week ago is that's not what Notre Dame's going to do. Notre Dame's going to accept this yeah. from, from everything that I can understand. Uh, the process of actually changing records within their annals has begun. And I, I think that's really, really sad. And as you can imagine, there are some people in Notre Dame that are not in agreement with, with that decision. But it's so typical Notre Dame to turn the other cheek, just like a good Catholic is supposed to. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's, I'm afraid, I, I shouldn't say 100% that's what's going mm-hmm. to happen or is happening, but I'm afraid that that's what's happening. So do you, are we saying the... Uh... The logo of the BCS National Championship game that's at the top of the Goog, the auditorium that we sit in a hundred times a year, is going to come down. You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I know that if you go online, if you go onto their their website and you look at their stats, their archive stats, it still reflects the old, the old numbers. But well, I think that like the stats for the games. Remain. No, but I mean like record and oh, stuff. Okay. Was, well, I know Brian you know, Kelly's Wikipedia page pages changed. You're interested in that? I, I no, I didn't have cause to. <laughs> yeah, visit he is now zero and one in 2012 and, and uh, 0 and four in 2013. Yeah. People don't. His overall record doesn't that. look as good now. Right, it's just zero and one and zero and four. The wins don't count. The losses that you had do. You don't. You don't tack on losses. So, um, a transition to losing uh, Notre Dame basketball because the Miami game was. Uh, you were there on Monday night, and that that felt like a bit of a breaking point. 
go just in terms of mathematically, but no, also, but no also emotionally, it, the players felt, after the game. Yeah, that was felt that players. Matt Farrell, even before he left the court, was yeah. emotional and was was crying because he put so much of that on his back. And and uh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, there was a feeling like, okay, now it's over. Is it? Well, if you won your last three, including winning at Virginia, and then won two or three games in the ACC tournament, I conceivably they could still make it. You know, in a lot of respects, they're not going to beat Virginia. We all agree right. with that. Uh, but if that were to happen, well, you'd look at things a lot differently in about 10 days. But, I, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. Bonzi Colson is about ready to come back. He, I know, is going to be pushing the play. Saturday at Wake Forest. I don't think Mike Bray is going to allow him to do that just because he hasn't had enough practice time. Uh, but he'll play Wednesday in the, in the home finale against Pittsburgh. Let me just say this about injuries and what people don't understand. When there's an injury and they say eight weeks, that includes rehab. That includes practice time. So they build in that time. So in eight weeks, and it looks like he's going to be ready in eight, eight weeks, mm-hmm. shy, one day shy, I think, of eight weeks, He's ready to go. He's practiced. It doesn't mean eight weeks and okay, now he can start practicing. Which That's I feel of... like how it is in football. Like when we talk about football injuries, right? And someone's out for four weeks, they're out for four weeks, and then they come back and have to play their way back into that, shape. That 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 may be a result of of Brian Kelly's interpretation <laughs> of of how long an injury is going to We found to last. something where Brian Kelly is more optimistic than Mike Bray. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, anyway, I mean, it, it was sad. And, you know, Farrell takes, Farrell takes the blame for a lot of that stuff. And, and the, the, the reality is, in this, you know, him and Gibbs had to play 40 minutes. And the reality is that they had no legs. I don't think Gibbs had legs left. He had a real slow first half and then pushed himself to throw in 11 in the second half. But... The accumulation of, of time spent on the basketball court has just been too much, and it reached a, it reached a head Monday night. Yeah, I mean they don't they you know the no fluger situation right. was just that was that's a bridge too far for that roster to play. I mean you just look at the guys they're putting out on the court, and not that Miami is great, but Miami looked really athletic and really long and very bouncy in a way that Notre Dame just yeah well and, and the unfortunate because Fluger was out. It kind of forced Miami's hand to play that second big guy. Is, is, is who was who, really good. Who was really good. <laughs> who averages like four points a game and scored, not look like scored 15 and had eight rebounds. And so because of that, you know, uh, Larinaga played a little bit bigger and it, it cost Notre Dame. Yeah. It was a, it's definitely, but I agree with you. Look, they can get the next two. They probably will. And then Virginia is. I just don't see how that. I mean, with with Colson, Harvey, Farrell, and Fluger all 100. percent I wouldn't. Yeah, well, Har- them and, to get and Harvey's out. Harvey probably won't play regular season or postseason. Yeah, that's been announced. Uh, you know, and Bray's just amazing because after the game, he's like, you know, we're, well, we're still good to play, baby. We're still, you know. But then he said, maybe the NIT's best for us. The NIT might be best for them, not for Colson, Farrell, and Gebbin. No, but it you know it would help it would help Mooney grow a little bit more. It would help Burns grow a little bit more, you know what have you. But Bray will take whatever's dealt to them, and it will probably be the NIT. Yeah, and it's, uh, there have been I think seasons where he's just wanted it to be over. Where it struggled, I don't get the sense. No, that definitely not. Def- definitely not. You know, I mean, uh, because his seniors are so invested, and here's Colson who. 
you know, and maybe Colson ends up skipping the NIT. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out depending upon how yeah. it, it reacted uh, today's Thursday. Today will actually be his first day practicing, like a half practice, and he'll try to go to full practice on Friday or whatever they do in preparation for the game the next day. Um, but no, Bray doesn't feel that way, and I don't think the players feel that way because they're invested. And he made a point the other night of saying, you know, man, I don't have any players complaining about playing time. No. You know, because everybody gets a chance to practice. And in my Thursday thoughts today, you know, they only have 11 scholarships, 11 players on scholarship. And he doesn't like to have 13 because then you have disgruntled players at the end of the bench because he usually plays a pretty short lineup. But it sure would be nice if you had a couple more scholarship players right now and you might have been able to eke out you know, that one-point loss to, to North Carolina or the three-point losses to Miami and Louisville and the five-point loss to Virginia Tech, all of which were at home. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we talked about this on a previous podcast about the roster management. And I, I think Notre Dame is, they needed a DJ Harvey version in the front court. Some guy who's 6'9", athletic. I mean, the guy, I'm thinking of the guys they recruited in the well, past. Remember, like, Xavier Tillman was a guy they were in on? He ended yeah. up at Michigan State. I mean, Mooney has stepped like forward. Mooney has stepped forward. Like a big, big. Um, yeah, like like Gebbin is. Yeah, right another Gebbin. It just cracks me up. I, Gebbin has been good all season. I know that's astonishing to us, but... I, I, yeah, know, he has. But someone said, well, boy, it's really been great to see his development the last half dozen games. He's been, <laughs> he's been astonishingly good basically the whole season. Maybe the first five games, I thought, geez, he still looks the same. But after that, he took off. And he was, I mean, he was great in Maui. He's been, yeah, he's been really, really, really productive all season he long. He turned it on there and it hasn't hasn't turned off. No. Um, let's wrap up the segment. Hunter Spears, uh, defensive tackle, four-star commitment from Saxe, Texas. And... Um, I don't. You like to sophomore film because there isn't any junior film. No. He had an ACL tear. Um, you know, now he's about thirty-five pounds heavier than the yeah. last time we saw a film of him. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's an interesting pickup. A guy that they they liked. If you're into rankings, you you like it. If you're into offer list, you maybe look at it and be like, okay, what's what's the story there? Because he hit two eighty overall. Yeah, he's so he's a he's no he's top two fifty. Okay, um, but his offer list wouldn't really match up with that. Like yeah. with A and M, Texas, not really involved. Um, I know Alabama offered him, but Alabama offers like two hundred kids. Um, but he, basically, my point is. Notre Dame saw something that a lot of other schools didn't, uh, and they made a move on him and, and took. They offered him dirt while he was injured, uh, which is was interesting to me. Yeah, um, and, so, and schools in Texas don't have to do that. I mean, no. I, I get that part of it, and I'm, I'm not trying to justify Notre Dame's offer or not here. But man, when he was 260 pounds, I just he's one of those kids that you don't. You don't see white defensive linemen like that very often that are just, I mean, he looks great in a football uniform. He moves really well. He looks athletic. He just looks like, he just looked like a 260-pound athlete. Mm-hmm. He kind of reminded me, I'm not saying he has the same game, but it reminded me of how Derek Landry looked in a football uniform. Say, uh, can yeah. you, could you name an athletic yeah, white defensive lineman? Yeah, I mean, Der- <laughs> you know, Derek Landry. Derek Landry, you know, was probably more of an end coming in, but ended up moving inside. Mm-hmm. Um and that's kind of who he reminds me of, just the way he carries himself. I don't know if there's an exact comparison to, to their games and stuff because he is. He could, I mean, he can probably play strong side defensive end for Nordin, but probably not at 295 pounds. Right. You know, and so he's gained weight. A lot of it, good weight. A lot of it, muscle muscle mass. I get that, but 
uh, you know, he's got to get in with Matt Bayless and let him reshape the body and see what they come out with. It's, it's a good place for Notre Dame to be because I think in the past we would look at, well, a four-star defensive tackle committed. That's something that happens every other year. And now you're looking at Jason Adamalola um, last year with Jamie and Franklin, who I know you really like a lot more than more than the yeah. rank, the industrial rankings complex. Um, and then this year with David Lacey, or, yeah, Jacob Lacey. I'm Jacob sorry, Lacey. Not his dad, um, David. <laughs> Jacob Lacey and Hunter Spears, that's three four-star commitments at defensive tackle in, in two cycles. Yeah. And I think that, I looked this up earlier in the week, I, I think they had signed in the, Kelly's first seven cycles, four four-star defensive tackles total. Um, so to get three and two cycles with Darnell Ewell, Myron Tagovailoa, and Kurtanish right. before that, um, they're sort of turning a position of perpetual weakness into a bit of a strength. I mean, shoot, when we were talking about the roster last year, I think we we were having a debate about what's the weakest position on the team: safety or defensive tackle. We're not going to be talking about defensive no, we'll tackle say for it's a long one of the time. Strengths. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. I wish some of that strength would seep out to the end positions. Yeah. But they're but you know, we've talked about this a couple times. They're young there right now, and those guys have the guys that are going to be playing defensive end this year are basically the guys that played defensive end last year and, and the year and, and the year and the year to come, yeah. 2019. So yeah, that's good. I mean, you still still you have to do better recruiting those weak side defensive ends, which has been a struggle, but they feel good about their their options going mm-hmm. into the 2019 class, and they are in on some some pretty big time weak side defensive ends. I'll, you know, look, I'll give Mike Elston credit because he he set expectations in a way that coaches rarely want to do in recruiting um, when you're dealing with high school kids. And he said, "This is the best looking board that I've had yeah. in now nine ten cycles here." Um, so if that if that holds up, and they sign, he said they wanted to sign two defensive tackles, two defensive ends, strong side. Two defensive ends for the drop position. If they can get six guys uh, and they're all going to be four star types, then that will that will be the best class. That that would probably jump the two it Knicks or not two it Lynch Nicholas um, Ishak Williams group. Maybe I mean you could certainly make an argument yeah. that you could sign fifty four star prospects and none of them are going to be as good as Aaron Lynch just based on how elite he was or still on to it on top of that. But just in terms of depths and, and program fits, it's going to be a much easier uh, group to coach for Mike Elston. I think some of the guys he's <laughs> yeah. had in the past. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for segment one. We've got burning up the board segment two, and then segment three to follow an interview with new Notre Dame commitment, Hunter Spears. Back to segment two, Irish Illustrated Insider, burning up the boards. First question from Wash ND. How do you think the quarterback reps will be split among the quarterbacks in <coughs> spring practice? If one quarterback pulls significantly ahead in spring, do you think Kelly will name a starter going into summer or wait and let it play out into fall camp? Well, didn't Kelly say last year that the practice reps were split 60-40? He says that every Wimbush year, does, I mean, I don't know how accurate that is or not. But, hey, I, I don't think... One quarterback is going to significantly pull ahead of the other one this spring. And I don't think that um, he'll name a starter coming out of the spring. Do you? No. There's, there's zero chance that happens. Yeah. I like, mean, it's just it's counterproductive to your two quarterbacks that are you want Book to you want Book to feel like I've got a shot at this and I, they're going to give me a shot 
to compete for it. And you want Wimbush to think, well, I can retain my starting yeah. spot. You know, I think, you know, there's 10 seated. You know, maybe I, I think we kind of did it after the bowl game. It's like, okay, Ian Book's got to be in the picture here. Wimbush started 10 games. They won 10 games. Nordame rarely wins 10 games. He did a lot of positive things, mainly in the red zone. We've talked about that a million times. He rushed for over 700 yards. But there are times where he can't hit the broad side of a barn in a game when he's throwing it. So, um, you know, Book did enough to, to keep it wide open. I don't I, I don't look for any resolutions in the spring, Frank. That, I don't know a coach that would come to any resolutions in the spring under these circumstances. Well, especially not the one that's coaching in Notre Dame. <laughs> like he, I think he enjoys the open-ended quarterback competition, whether it's good, bad, or different. And I, with Ian Book, he has earned the right to be in a competition, but that's it. You know, I, I think people think the fourth quarter against LSU was one quarter of his entire season. Um, if he had played like that all year, then I would feel differently. But you know, in, in Wimbush, you're right. They they won nine games with him starting, games, and Book gets yeah. the North Carolina nod where he threw two interceptions against a terrible team um, in his first start on the road. So I, it's. To me, this has all the makings of yet another quarterback competition that goes into training camp that uh, we're charting reps and analyzing every little thing. And then a decision we expect in mid-August doesn't get made until the week before the game. Um, I think it's just this has that written all over it, which is awkward, I think, for everybody. Um, I just... I don't want it to end in a uh, Kaiser Zaire situation where they both play. And I mean, it was, it was funny talking to Reese about this on signing day um, about the nature of the quarterback room and how they have to be close. Cause he's like, because only one guy plays. And I'm like, actually, and he's like, well, ideally only one guy plays. Yeah. Um, it's, that, a, it's tough. No, it is. It's one of the, one of the lousy things that a, that a football coaching staff has to deal with when it, when it comes to these situations. I mean, and you can practice you know you can practice every day from now until the day before the opener and you get in a game and the guy you name the starter is struggling what are you going to do you're going to stay with him and not give the other guy a shot i mean it's just a it's it's a real real there's no clear cut way to do it you know people talk about what was it uh, uh Tebow and was it Tebow and Leak? Was yeah. it Leak? It was Tebow. It was, yeah, it was team. it was Tebow and Leak in that work. But I mean, that's such the extreme, extreme exception when it comes to quarterbacks and sharing the position. So you know, we always say Brandon Wimbush has the higher upside, and I get why we say that. But Ian Book does more things w- well with Chip Long's offense than Brandon Wimbush does. Andrew Hendricks and Dan Chris had a higher upside than Tommy Reese. <laughs> Yeah, How did that work out? Yeah, so that doesn't... Yeah, I don't... I mean, yeah, if Brandon Wimbush can can throw, you know, can complete 59% of his passes as opposed to 49.5, and yet, you know, he doesn't turn it... It's a, He doesn't turn it over as much as Book does because Book believes he's going to... Okay, I got a spot there. I'm going to fit it in there. Wimbush will just shy away from that and either throw something away or run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um... This is just going to be an ongoing thing, unfortunately. But it, it, it's it's yet another murky off season of the quarterback position. Is. And this is like of nine off seasons. How many have we had clarity at the quarterback position? Like two, yeah, maybe two. I think just two. And one of them was yeah. One and of I, them was Malik Zaire, who then got hurt. Well, and the the Kaiser, you know, the, I 
you know, personally think the Kaiser Zaire thing was mishandled. That should have been Kaiser, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Going out of the limb. Well, yeah, but no, I mean, you know, he was trying to do the right thing by Malik Zaire to yeah, keep Malik just... happy because Malik would grouse and make a lot of noise behind closed doors. But that was not what was in the best interest of the team. And uh, this is a different situation. This is a this is a difficult decision to make. And personally, as a as a former coach, as a coach, <laughs> I would go with the I. You know, as we sit here right now, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge. Thanks, Coach P. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> as you know, if I had to make that decision, I would go with the guy that I felt could do the most. Could accomplish the most with our playbook, and that's Ian Book. Right now, that's Ian Book. Yeah, that's. I agree, pretty much. Club Fred ninety. Based on your experience as an educated outsider, what advice would you give to parents of a top football recruit on how to best handle the recruiting process? Hey, uh, I would one get it over early. Have like understand that you're going to be a recruit from your junior year and have your target date being committed before your senior year, which is more reasonable now because you can take official visits during spring practice, yeah. which I think is a, That's a cool. benefit That's key. for Notre Dame. I would not have a Twitter account. I would stay off social media. I just don't think it does these kids really any good. Um, That's a tough ask. It's a big one. <laughs> it, uh, other than like maybe connecting with other prospects, but after you're committed, then you can get on social media. Yeah. Uh, and then this is a weird one, but like I would, if I was a recruit, I would sort of look the media of 24 seven and rivals and ESPN is not going away. Um, but how I would deal with it, I would basically say, I'm going to deal with one reporter from each network. And then that I'll let you know when you need to know what I need to know. I'll talk to you after my visits. Right. But then instead of having 50 people calling me, you have three, right. um, those would be those would be my those Pete's, are great. Pete's recruiting tips. Yeah, those are those are uh, those are great. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm getting a kid off Twitter. Boy, good luck with that. Or yeah, can he stay on Twitter but just not re- respond to? Um, that that's I, that's pretty yeah, difficult. That's, I would. <laughs> I would. It just I just feel like there's an inverse relationship between tweets and how productive no, you are. Right. You're right. You're right. SR five four five two. When you look at the skill position players. On the upcoming 2018 Notre Dame offense, how can you be optimistic? Um, here's how I'd be optimistic. I'll just read some names and it's offensive skill positions. Komet, Wright, Mack, Austin, Lindsey, Young, Claypool, Boykin, Dexter Williams, Tony Jones, Wimbush, Book, and Jerkovic. I mean, that, that, when you read that list of names, don't you think... Well, there's a lot to work with. Yeah, there. when you put it that way, certainly. I'm not sure that the question is about tight ends and quarterbacks as much as it is wide receivers and running backs, but whatever. No, you're right. I mean, and you have to include, I mean, the tight ends are an integral part of Chip Long's mm-hmm. offense and they have some really, really good ones and they have a couple good ones coming in. So that's a real positive. I wrote about this in Thursday thoughts today. I think mainly based upon this question. Um, and I, and I looked at just the wide receiver position. And if you look, we're looking at the wide receivers today, you'd have a starting lineup, likely, of Boykin, Claypool, and Michael Young. Let's say those three. I don't know. I feel pretty good about that. I feel pretty good about the next step for Chase Claypool, based upon you know a little bit of up and down, certainly down at the end of the 2017 season. Um, 
The arrow's pointing up for Miles Boykin. Maybe that's a little premature based upon one play or one game, but it was a big play in a big game, and that's what you like out of a receiver. And Michael Young comes up, you know, finds a hole in the back of the end zone, scores a touchdown in a bowl game. So I feel pretty good about those three. Uh, guys, other guys already on the roster that you feel good about at whiteout, you know, that's kind of limited. We don't know about Jafar Armstrong. We don't know. Well, I should also throw in Chris Fink as a guy that, that certainly is a veteran and, and can play for you. You know, he'll be assignment strong and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, Jafar Armstrong, Javon McKinley, um, you don't really know about those guys. I'm missing somebody else in there. Uh, I mean, Micah Jones is on the roster. Yeah, right? yeah, okay, yeah, Micah Jones. Well, and, and then you throw in the four, you know, I mean, that's as good of a freshman class of receivers as on paper before we actually see them run around. Is that, That's about as good as it gets. Yeah. Um, now, are are three of the four going to be game ready this year? No. Are, I mean, just the odds. One. I think one. One maybe. or maybe two. Since yeah. you have four of them, one or maybe two. And I love three of them in Austin, Lindsay, and Keys. There's just a lot to work with there, and I mean, there is a lot to work with. It's it's a section of the team where guys need to make a jump. Like you need a, a Tavon Coney type of uh, move from somebody, uh, or you need a or a like you need a Myron Tagovailoa, a Mosa yeah. type move from a freshman. Um, you need something unexpected. But I I look at that group and think there's just a lot of guys that if just two of the eight. Do something unexpected, like that's that's a reasonable assumption almost. So, you know, how do I feel like confident that I know who it's going to be? Absolutely not. I just feel pretty good that it's going to be someone. You would agree, those? I mean, those are the starting three. I don't know that yeah. you have too many options other than Fink. I guess. No, I think would, I think those be will be option. your top four guys uh, when when camp opens, and then I think Austin Lindsay through the course of the season, are probably going to come in and out of the lineup. Yeah, um, I think Keyes is certainly capable of that athletically. But between, like, Wisher, Mack, Komet, and Brock Wright, you know, are three of those guys going to be on the field almost all the time? Like, you know, I mean, yeah. in a rotation, so for yeah. two tight... There's no reason two tight ends can't continue to be what they're about on offense if... I think Brock Wright and Cole Komet, I feel best about those guys making major moves um, where you're, you're like, oh, yeah, those were the yeah. the, the, the top 100 prospects that they were coming out of high yeah. school. Yeah, and I I mean, I look at Komet as a potential. I mean, this that's a difference-making pass catcher. Yeah. Or, major that, li- or major league pitcher. Yeah, well, I, I, was, I wasn't impressed with his uh, velocity, the uh, uh, inning that I saw him pitch the other day. But uh, he threw a lot of break. He got, yeah, he got a save against LSU, for those that don't know, number nine LSU. But... Uh, um, I'm not sure he throws that hard, actually, Pete. But we'll find out about him. He did win a state title, so. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a big time receiver. He is a potential big time receiver at tight end. And then, I mean, if he emerges as that kind of guy, we haven't even mentioned Elze Mack. Did you mention yeah, Elze Mack? Okay, him. okay. Um, you know, now if you have a big time receiver at tight end, or maybe even two. Mm-hmm. It lessens the need for some of those marginal wide receivers to step forward. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's how I'd like to see them play it. You know, was, reception. Uh, it's yeah, probably how Chip Long would like to see them. Yeah, play. receptions are receptions. You know, yeah. twelve yard gains are fine from tight ends. 
Irish Shem, with the new rule on redshirting, should we expect almost every freshman to see time in four games during the year with a possibility of them returning? That that was passed. That that was passed? Uh, it's going to be it's, passed. It is going to be yeah. passed. Um, not necessarily. I mean, if a kid's not ready, he's not ready. I mean, you know, I don't know that, you know, like, for example, Drew, Drew White wasn't physically ready to play last year. Maybe he, maybe he gets thrown into uh, uh, games that you're winning by 35 or, or players like that get thrown into games. If you can use all four, yeah, go ahead and use all four. But I don't know that I don't know that necessarily everyone gets in if a guy's not physically. For example, Tariq Bracey, who I love, who I think is, I think I might have called him at one point the most underrated three-star guy in there because I think Jamie Franklin's really a four-star Um I don't know that he's going to be physically ready to play this fall, so I don't know that you would throw him in. I think it's a, it's a pretty narrow group of guys that weren't ready at the beginning that are ready at the end. Um, so it's like you look at last year's class. Aside from Jeremiah Wusukormoa and Josh Lug, I'm not sure there would be any candidates. Like, I think Wusukormoa would have been on special teams by the end yes. of the year. Um, Love probably would have got reps in a blowout. Uh, I think if there was one guy that this would apply to most, it probably would have been Javon McKinley. Like, he would have played in the bowl game and probably played in November when they had injuries or suspensions at wide receiver. Right. Um, Where they could have saved that year that he was redshirting as a sophomore. But to say, I agree with you, to say that everybody's just suddenly going to get in, I don't don't think that's the case at all. Because the reason they're not playing... This is Brian Kelly's approach is because they're physically not ready, right. as you said. That then it doesn't make any sense to put them in the game. Right. Anyway. Then you're just getting, you're, you're not even getting reps. You're yeah. just getting plays that are that count. But um, I, lo- I love the role. I mean, I yeah, think, I I think, think it's, it's awesome. I think it's great. I think it's good for college football without without taking a huge step, you know, f- uh, forward in the process. Um, I like it. I don't think it hurt. I don't think it. I just think it's good all the way around. Well, I think it's one of those rules where it was they should have instituted it about twenty years ago. Um, like when they reduced scholarships from ninety five to eighty five in the early nineties, while at while going from eleven games to twelve games. I mean, now some teams are playing fifteen games, yeah. but you're keeping the scholarship <laughs> limit at eighty five. Right, right, right. Now you actually have eighty five guys to play with, um, opposed to really having more like. 67 because you're redshirting a bunch did of Did you? I maybe it just, I mean, the concept when I heard the concept, I'm like, damn, that's a good concept. I never thought of that. Maybe it just wasn't thought of. You'd think all the people you who, would think who spend their day thinking about college football you would think. Would come up with this. I know, but um, ideas come when they come, and yeah. Uh, and it, you know, they need momentum because I think people, some people are resistant to it. I mean, I think there, there are some people that are even resistant to this, which makes no sense to me, but um. It just seems like a no-brainer. It's good for player safety because you're not wearing guys down. Right. It's good to keep guys engaged because, I mean, I, every coach would tell you that once you get a little bit of a taste, you're just more dialed into everything and redshirting. Yeah, and t- we've sucks. seen Notre Dame fall apart in November, so I'm yeah. sure that's happening. We don't get to study other teams throughout college football. I'm sure that's happening to a lot of other schools. I think we're safe to say that injuries happen in college they football. They do. And the more they you do. play, the more injuries happen. They do. Kel Pete. Where does Avery Davis fit into the quarterback mix? I mean, to be blunt, I, I don't think that he does. Um, I just I, I don't see him having the skill set of the other guys, and I think they've recruited over the top of him uh, with Jakovic. So 
I think you're sitting there thinking, if you're Avery Davis, I'll com- you know compete with Dracovic and see how that shakes out, and then and then make a decision. But I mean, look at Notre Dame's quarterback history, not just under Brian Kelly, but under Charlie Weiss or under Willingham, under Davey, under Holtz. Not every quarterback sticks around, so it's difficult to keep four scholarship quarterbacks. And they want to do five. I mean, that was something that Reese said that their their goal is to have five scholarship quarterbacks. And I said, "Is that so? You make sure you always have four? And he's like, "Basically." Um, oh right, right, because right. guys guys move, so they would. It's if, still the fifth guy is going to be is going to be a three star marginal guy that you're not sure whether you can put him in a game or not. Well, I mean, the, if let's say everyone sticks around, then the fifth guy would be Cade McNamara, who's a four-star who got is now his offers from Michigan and yeah. USC. But the guy who leaves will probably be the lowest rated. Maybe not necessarily always, but um, if you have five, then it make, then you're sure to have four. Well, and definitely have three, because they're in spend in some positions where they only have, it looks like they have two. Yeah. Now, you know, and I, I don't... I don't know Avery Davis. I don't know what his intentions are. A lot of times a guy just like, hey, I want to get my Notre Dame degree, but it's very early in his career. He hasn't even used a year of eligibility yet. Right. Um, you know, when I th- when people talk about position changes, a lot of times I think some of them are crazy, like J- Javon McKinley in the secondary. And I don't think that that's a, a fit. But as far as Avery Davis, I, you know, I... I could, I don't know. Could he play wide receiver? I don't know. He's listed two hundred five. Does he? Is he really two hundred five? And could he actually be a running back? That may, you know, that may sound silly to some people. The way, you know, some suggestions I hear sound to me. So, um, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know. But I agree with you. He does not. He does not have a future. I think at quarterback in Notre Dame. And Cade McNamara does. Yeah. Yeah, especially along with the other three, without a doubt. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just tough to to look at that, and it it's just a numbers game. And whoever wins the job, great. Whoever's fourth or fifth and decides that they want an opportunity elsewhere, that's fine too. That's um, just that's college football in in twenty eighteen. Right, it's been college football for the last six or seven years, so right. it's not not that big of a deal. Uh, BMD, who's the next face of Notre Dame football? This was on our uh, on our message board. I. Uh, I think Notre Dame is going to be pumping the Drew Tranquil story at Corey Robinson levels um, this fall, so I, that would be that would be my pick, and that's fine because he's the ideal Notre Dame story that they want out there. Um, not only is he a super high academic kid, um, engineering you know, got degree, engineering degree, <laughs> got the real faith aspect to his life, um, super sharp interview, but is also like really into football. Like football isn't just something that he right. does. Um, so it, I'd say Tranquil would be the guy there. I'm not. I'm not really sure if anybody else jumps off the page. Uh, I, you know, some I think somebody suggested and I agree. Julian Love. I mean, Julian. Oh Love, yeah. You, know, you can you can yeah. trot out Julian Love and you could trot out Julian Love after the NCAA announced uh, <laughs> va- vacating victories, and he'd probably do a better job than Brian Kelly did that day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Sam Mustafer is quiet. Yeah, but no, but Sam's very, really very well spoken, very thoughtful. intelligent. Um, I think he's always got something interesting to say. Um, those, I mean, those would be guys. It's basically like you're asking who's going to be captain next year. Yeah, those three guys. 
Yeah, those three those three guys, I would say almost Julian loves a junior, but obviously that's not an impediment anymore. Yes, because it might be his last year. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I, you, I think you want Julian Love as a captain next year. You don't. You wouldn't want to wait on that. He, I think he, to a large extent, you know, already has the the. Oh, yeah. already is a captain yeah. uh, on this team, especially heading into the spring. Yeah, I think he had credibility very, very early. So, yeah, yeah th- those would be the guys. But um, you know, it's just interesting to me that how many years, how many times has the quarterback sort of been the face of the program? At Notre Dame, it's very rare uh, under Brian Kelly, which is strange just based on the nature of that position. You know, I think Kaiser did a, a very good job yeah. of it um, under some difficult circumstances, some external, some internal. But um, it's just, um, you know, offensive linemen and then, you know, have always been good here. And then, you know, tranquil and love. So those would be my guys. Uh, that's it for segment two, Irish Illustrated Insider. Segment three, we have an interview with Hunter Spears coming up. That'll be the end of the podcast, and then we'll probably be, be probably be back next week um, to be determined based on uh, upcoming weather events around South Bend. But uh, <laughs> so until then, Tim Priester, Pete Sampson will be rejoined by Tim O'Malley uh, when we return. And next up, an interview with Notre Dame commitment Hunter Spears. A special guest on Irish Illustrated Insider this week, Notre Dame's new commitment, Hunter Spears, a four-star defensive tackle out of Texas. And Hunter, first, thanks for taking some time to do this. Um, And I guess I kind of wanted to start with, you know, a bit of adversity that hit you in your high school career. You know, something that Josh Adams, who all Notre Dame fans know, you know, tore his ACL his junior year. Um, There's always some uncertainty with that. How did you sort of process that as like, okay, I'm just starting to be a big time recruit. Notre Dame's taking a look at me. Some other schools are taking a look at me. And then just in a, in a flash at a, at a off season camp, it's sort of like, you have, you got to build it all back up again. What was that like for you? What did you learn about yourself as you came back from an ACL? Uh, definitely. And first of all, just thank you for having me. But, um, uh, it was, it was hard. Um, I just got my first couple offers. I didn't think I got offered by Alabama like two weeks before, and I was just expecting my recruitment to take off. And um, just really excited to showcase myself and uh, sort of put myself on the map. And then, you know, <clears throat> life comes at you fast, and all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, uh, one place, a one-on-one, get taken to the ground, and it just happens like that. So I mean, life came at you pretty. Life came at me pretty fast. And um, but I would say it's probably um. It's been it's been key for me, and um, probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. It made me gain way more respect for the game, and uh, showed just how much I, like my love for football, and just how quickly like how quickly it can be taken away from you, especially like how much all the other aspects of life matter. And I guess what was your rehab process like in terms of how hard it was, um, and, and also just sort of when you felt like okay. I'm I'm on my way back. I'm almost back, and I guess sort of the the natural follow up there is when do you feel like you will be all the way back, or do you sort of feel like you're already there? I'm um, definitely rehab. Rehab's a hard thing. Honestly, the the hardest part for me wasn't physically. I I got it. I got it pretty quickly physically, and I excelled, and I was pretty ahead of schedule. But just the mental side of it can be extremely draining on you, and um, it almost sort of feels like there's never an end, especially with in my circumstance, um, having sit out a whole season that took a big toll on me. But just just knowing that I still had people pursuing me and having the opportunity to play at the play at the next level kept me going. And um, I'd say about a couple months ago, 
I started to feel really good and I started to get really confident and started to like realize that I was back and that I had overcome the, the hurdle. And how did sort of Notre Dame go about sort of continuing to recruit you throughout the rehab, through the injury and sort of letting you know, Hey, we really want you, you've got a spot here. Um, and how did that sort of like set your mind at ease a little bit? Um, and you know, look, recruiting is a, is a pretty bizarre process, but, uh, how did Notre Dame sort of make you feel good and comfortable about it, uh, even with the injury? Um, definitely. I would say, uh, I mean, they offered me, they offered me when I was injured, like not even a month after, like, I think, um, coach, coach Elko at the time came and saw me and I was, I was like literally in a brace, barely walking in with like crutches on and he still felt confident in me and, um, the ability for me to come back to offer me and just, um, and I would say the relationship I got to build with coach Elston, it never, it never fluctuated, never, never faulted. So, I mean, just seeing how much they cared for me and, um, how much they still considered me, that definitely was huge for me and knowing that like, these are genuine people. And I think, you know, there are prospects, they commit to a school, some commit to a coach. I think you sort of committed to a school and a coach with Elston combined with Notre Dame. What is Elston like as a recruiter for people who don't know him? Um, how does he sort of make you feel comfortable, make you feel wanted, while also sort of like hitting the key marks of, of things you want to hear? I'll definitely say so. I mean, that was another big thing in the whole recruiting process that I learned is that you can't necessarily commit to a coach just because of all the craziness that college football is, but I felt comfortable with him and especially with the school in general and just all the opportunities offered for me. But um, Coach Allison's an amazing guy. He's a he's a really strong family man, and um, that was definitely something that was big for me, something like a family environment, someone that would be like a, almost like a father to me when I'm going to be so far away from home and someone that will be like crucial in developing me sp- spiritually, mentally, and physically. And um, I just felt really comfortable with him and, from the start and how he had treated my family. So, And how is his recruiting style maybe a little bit different than some other guys or coaches you got to know over the last year, year and a half? Like different um, is that he just, he, he, he took his time with me. Like he was always, he was always very understanding of the process and realizing how stressful it is. And he never pushed me. And um, he was like, he always stressed that he wanted me to make the right decision. And um, he just, I just, I just felt with him that like, I tried trust. I trusted him, and I felt like I had a good relationship with enough, a good enough a relationship with him to trust him in developing me. You know, a, a cool sort of sidebar in your recruitment was coming up to the USC game last year as a, I think, a birthday present. Your parents got you plane tickets to come up to that. Um, how early did you start dropping hints that you want to do that, or was that their idea? So you sort of like take us behind the scenes on how the, that visit all came about, because I think that was sort of a moment where a lot of Notre Dame fans would be like, whoa, okay, this guy is really interested in maybe leaving Texas and coming up to South Bend. We had we had come up with the idea, especially after they offered me that, we're like, this is definitely like a school that checks all the boxes for me, and um, it's a place I definitely wanted to visit, and that was I can't remember what was the exact date. I can't remember the exact date of that game, but it was like it was October fifteenth, I think. Uh huh. Yeah, so it was definitely it was pretty close to my birthday. It's like a month after my birthday, so my parents were like, "We're gonna take you up here and just let you experience it because it was gonna be it's gonna be an incredible experience for us." And it was even though it was a quick visit, just all the sights and just stepping foot on the campus. Um, it was just an amazing experience. And again, was that something like? 
your your parents said like, hey, let's just turn your birthday present into a visit, or or did you sort of like reach out to them to sort of get the ball rolling? How did that sort of come up? They basically said, if you want to do this, then this is sort of going to be kind of like your birthday present. You know, this is going to be a big trip for you. It's going to be a big trip for us. So if you're going to do, let's do this right. So I mean, it was it was a, it was a big experience for all of us, and uh, definitely something I won't ever forget. And I guess how much did you sort of know about Notre Dame before you walked into the stadium, you know, that October Saturday night? I'm, I've always watched Rudy. I'm a big fan of the movie Rudy. Uh, but uh, just being being there for it in person is way different. It's just something you have to experience it. And some people get it and some people don't. But the people that do get it, like, you truly realize how special it is and how much tradition and history it has. So when did you get it that weekend? I mean, was it the player walk? Was it, you know, the, the blowout win over USC locker room after what was, what was sort of the moment where you're like, okay, yeah, this is, this is sort of everything that I thought it would be watching Rudy or talking to people that know about Notre Dame. When like the players were like walked to the student section that really did it for me. That was just one of the coolest things I've ever seen, especially them running onto the field and then getting to be in the locker room after the game, just, getting to be around the team with that awesome win I just, it just felt right and I guess in terms of when you knew it I, I think that coming out of the USC weekend you felt like okay Notre Dame's a really good option for me and then the junior day comes up um this winter that seemed to be like when you're like okay this this is the place it's not just a place was there a moment in that junior day weekend talking to coach Elston being around some of the other prospects, just walking around campus, we were like, okay, this is it. I know I wanted to commit on my birthday in September, but there's really no reason to wait. Oh uh, yeah. The the junior day was a big was a big hit for us. Me and my dad got to go up there, go up there and spend the day up there. And I'll definitely say, you know, getting to talk with like Jacob Lacey, me and him had a pretty good relationship coming in and just being around all those types of guys and especially the pool they have from all across the country just because it is Notre Dame. Um, those are the type of guys that I felt I felt right around. I felt like that I wanted to play with and could help me succeed at the next level. And just getting to meet with Coach Lee, being the new, being him being promoted to the defense coordinator, and just getting to talk with Coach Elston more just about where they see me and how they see me exceeding and excelling in um in all aspects of the game, and just how he can help me get to where I want to be. And uh, the Elko to Lee transition is something interesting I'm, I'm curious about your opinion of that as a, as a recruit um what your reaction was when Elko left and then sort of sitting down with coach Lee and how quickly they reassured you like this is actually we're actually going to be running the same defense uh, we would like you exactly in the same way um how quickly were they able to make that point what was sort of that process like for you oh they're they're able to make it very quickly I mean coach Lee is an un- unbelievable guy and he's a definitely someone I'm looking forward to playing with sorry playing four um but i mean i didn't really i didn't really think much about the transition i was just excited to see who they brought in because that was that was just my love for notre dame at the time i lo- i love the school and i love the program so i mean i, I knew i knew it wasn't going to fluctuate much when mm-hmm. when he got the job so that was just a big thing and sort of spinning it forward a little bit you want to do early enrollment um how important was that to get squared away up here and like, is that something that you just always knew that you were going to do no matter where you ended up? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, um, one of my, I guess he's like, he's like one of my good friends and, uh, he sort of helped me got me along the way. His name's Isaiah Humphreys. He just graduated from my school and he's going to play at Penn state. 
he just he just stressed like how much like how much of a factor and how big it can be in like your overall develop, development process and also like having the chance to get there early and just get to know the guys and get like acclimated acclimated into like the program and i think in terms of your you we're talking about that junior day a little bit. I think they had maybe six defensive linemen. Now two of them are committed. Um, I know everyone asks you, hey, you're a recruit now. Are you going to be a recruiter? But is that is that something that's natural for you to do, to, to reach out to other prospects who are up here um, to try to get to know other guys to help add to the class? Oh, definitely. I mean, me and Nana Osafamensa have a pretty good relationship, and he's definitely someone I want on the team and I want want to be able to play with at the next level. And that's something definitely we talked about. We actually made a group, we actually made a group chat, um, like the day after the junior day. I mean, we all got along great and that's just the type of relationship we have. So I definitely, I definitely want to get him, Mozzie, Joseph. I think, I think we have a really good chance to get all of them. And I feel like we could have a crazy defensive line class. And I guess sort of get you out on a, a couple questions. One, I'm just curious, like how much of a relationship you built with head coach Brian Kelly during the process, what it was like sort of getting to know him a little bit. Uh, and then also just sort of, is there anything at this point that you feel like you still need to learn about Notre Dame? Or do you have like every question answered that you could want answered at this point? Um, me and Coach Kelly have a good relationship. Uh, we talk off and on. And um, I've, got, I've got to visit with him several times. And he just stressed to me that I'm the type of player that they want, the type of player that he wants to coach and that he wants on his team, just a good character guy and um, who'll play hard for the guys next to him. And I really trust him and just the vision he has for the future of the team. And I guess the only like thing I have left for me is as far as major wise, because I want to do pre-med. That's just something that fascinates me. And that's, I feel like that's something that, that I want to do with my life. And I guess that's the only thing I got to figure out if I can make that work. Okay. Well, football, you know, a bit of a time commitment up here, but it's uh, yeah, pre-med as well. I'm, I'm sure that's part, maybe part of the early enrollment process for you. You'll another extra semester up here to get stuff done in addition to getting in the weight room. So Hunter Spears, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on Irish Illustrated Insider, Notre Dame's newest commitment, the four-star defensive tackle out of Texas. Mm-hmm.